بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد فان احسن الكلام كلام الله وخير الهدى هدى محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وان شر الامور محدثاتها وكل محدثه بدعه وكل بدعه ضلاله وكل ضلاله في النار in our previous lesson we looked at the battle of hunain and we mentioned that this battle the battle of hunain uh, came after the messenger صلى الله عليه وسلم he conquered Mecca. The Muslims, they entered Mecca peacefully and they conquered uh, Mecca. And as a consequence of that, there were numerous tribes who saw this as a threat to them. They saw that since the Messenger of Allah has conquered Mecca, they were spreading rumors that he you know, has killed his opponents and he's fighting his own people and he's conquered them and Next, he's going to turn towards us. And so these tribes, this coalition of tribes, they basically got together and decided that rather than wait until the messenger attacks them, that they will make preparations to attack the messenger and to attack the city of Medina and to put an end to what they saw as this menace. And so the battle of Hunayn uh, was really um, to tackle these uh, various groups that were that were left and we looked at that uh, basic uh, uh, incident in some detail and that that same battle it was in the aftermath of that same battle where we saw the incident in which the messenger was distributing the uh, booty and that man known as Dhul Khuwaisara at Tamimi and the group that was with him they came and they challenged the uh, integrity of the Messenger of Allah in distributing the charities. And this was the man, and those who would be affected by him would later emerge as the uh, Khawarij. And so there were a number of other incidents that took place around this particular uh, uh, event. And so that brought us, or that brings us now today in our lesson uh, today, which brings us to the Battle of Tabuk. The Battle of Tabuk. And if you remember previously that we said there was a battle that took place between the Muslims and between the Romans, the Byzantines of Rome. And in that battle, uh, the Battle of Murta, and in that battle, the Muslims were only 3,000 in number. And they fought against an army of at least 100,000 possibly reaching 200,000. And the effect, although no side really came out on top of victorious, but the effect which it had upon you know, the, the onlookers from the tribes of the Arabs, and likewise, especially those tribes or those people that were resident on the border of those lands controlled by the Romans. Because a lot of them were actually... Uh, Arab tribes, a lot of them were Christian tribes. And when they saw that this uh, formidable army of Muslims, numbering only 3,000, had managed 
to keep back this uh, huge army of the Roman Byzantines, they, it, it had a, a, a huge effect upon their souls. And so what began to, what, what began to take place is that these tribes which were on this border between Syria and the Arabian Peninsula, they slowly began to break away from the Roman Empire and they began to have independence. And so this, in the eyes of the Romans, uh, was obviously a threat to their empire. And so they decided that they should uh, engage in a, a battle, a decisive battle, by which they can come to the Muslims, fight the Muslims, and put an end to them. So now, no sooner had news of this reached uh, the Messenger, وسلم, that they were gathering, preparing, making preparations, except that he uh, uh, sought the aid and the assistance and he gathered the Muslims together from every location and basically outlined that the Muslims will be engaging in a, an encounter and it will be in a certain, towards a certain direction. And so he made this announcement to allow the people to make the necessary pre preparations and also because this time was a time in which there was severe heat and there would be a lot of hardship and people would face, they were already in hardship already, there would be a drought and you know they'd had a good crop of uh, fruits and so on and so forth. So they ordered them to, to, to make the necessary preparations. Now as part of these preparations we see, we can see uh, an example of how the Muslims and the affluent amongst the Muslims and even the non-affluent amongst the Muslims, how they all came together and they made sacrifices from their wealth. So by way of example, uh, we saw that those who had ease and plenty of wealth, they paid to prepare those who didn't have the means to be able to engage in the encounter. So, for example, the first who came along was Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu, and he came with all of his wealth. He came with all of his wealth. And which numbered... 4,000 dirhams and the messenger of Allah said to him have you left anything for your family because he brought all of his wealth and he, the messenger was concerned uh, and he said to him have you left anything for your family and he said I have left for them Allah and his messenger and then Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu he came and he brought a half of his wealth and Uthman bin Affan, radiallahu anhu, he brought a great deal of wealth as well. It is said around 10,000 dinars of his wealth. He also donated uh, 300 camels along with all of the, you know, the, uh, the things that come along with the camel, the riding seat and everything else. And he also gave uh, 50 horses. And it is also said that he, he also gave 900 camels and 100 horses. Details vary. And the Prophet ﷺ, when he saw all of this huge amount of wealth donated by Uthman bin Affan, he said, Uthman will not be harmed by whatever action he does from this day, after this day. Likewise, Abdurrahman bin Auf, radiallahu anhu, he came with 200 vessels. And Al-Abbas, Radiallahu anhu, he came with a great deal of wealth, and Talha, and Sa'ad bin Ubadah, 
Muhammad bin Maslama, and others, they all brought a great deal of wealth with them. Like it was Asim bin Adi, um, brought dates. So whatever a person had that could be used to keep the army prepared on their path to the place of the encounter, then they brought whatever they had. So this companion, he brought some dates. And people began to come one after the other, each according to his ability. They would bring whatever wealth they had or possessions they had, until some of them even brought a handful, or a few handfuls of whatever possessions they had, in contribution to this striving in the path of Allah Azza wa Jal. And likewise the women would send whatever uh, adornments they would possess of jewelry and things of that nature. Now, after all of this, there came those companions who were poor and needy. Those who had nothing. And they came to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, requesting that there be someone amongst the Muslims who would be able to prepare them and carry them, meaning give them the means by which they can come and they can participate in this encounter for the sake of Allah And he said to them, as is mentioned by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran, in Surah Tawbah, the ninth Surah, verse 92, لا أجد ما عليه تَوَلَّوا وَأَعْيُنُهُمْ نَقِيدُ مِنَ الدَّمْعِ حَزَنًا أَلَّا يَجِدُوا مَا يُنْفِقُونَ أَلَّا يَجِدُوا مَا يُنْفِقُونَ He said, I cannot find that which will enable you, that which I can carry you upon. And so they turned away whilst their eyes were shedding tears out of grief or remorse that they could not find that from which they can spend. Meaning in the path of Allah. Meaning that the Messenger was unable to provide them the means for them to participate as well. And so they turned and they were in tears, these companions, that they couldn't find anyone who would be able to help them and support them. So this shows, uh, so, so, uh, so when they turned away, Uthman bin Affan, anhu, and likewise Al-Abbas and others, they came and from their wealth, they provided for the poor and needy from the companions in order to participate as well. Now, whilst all of this is taking place, there is another band of people, as you know, and they were the munafiqun, the hypocrites. And the hypocrites, when they began to see all of these rich and affluent people, and those who are not so affluent, and likewise the ones who would come with handfuls and two handfuls and you know of whatever they had of dates and foodstuffs, they began to make mockery of these people. They began to mock them. They began to make fun of them. The one who brought lots of wealth and the one who brought only a small amount of wealth. They began to mock them all. And they began to likewise mock and make fun of the Messenger of Allah because he was being so bold in meeting this army, the army of the Byzantines, a huge power in that, in that era. Now, when they were... When, when they made these remarks, they were making remarks of mockery and, and so on and so forth. And news came back to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, about this. They came and this is when the ayah was revealed. Say, is it in Allah and His uh, signs and His messengers that you mock in? 
the, 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 the hypocrites that came back and they basically said, Inna kunna nakhudu wa nal'abda. We were just maybe playing and we were just, you know, jesting and so on and so forth. And this incident happened here. And likewise, there were those who came to the messenger asking him to excuse them from participating. And this was, these were factions of the hypocrites. They didn't want to really fight because of cowardice and fear. And likewise, there were the desert Arabs. And they, they brought all sorts of excuses in order to avoid fighting. Why? Because they saw this, that this is madness. How can we stand up to an army this big and this huge? This is madness. How can we? So they, out of cowardice, they kept behind and they started to make excuses. And likewise, we see there were some of the Muslims, sincere practicing Muslims, who also remained behind for whatever reasons. And so now the army as a whole, when they were prepared uh, and they were about to leave, the messenger of Allah, he put Muhammad bin Maslama in charge of the city of Medina in his absence. And likewise, he put Ali bin Abi Talib عنه, in charge of his family, of his household. Then he gave the biggest and the largest flag to Abu Bakr as-Siddiq and he gave different flags to other uh, companions, uh, to Az-Zubayr, he gave it to represent the Muhajireen. And likewise the Aus, he gave it to Usaid bin Hudayr, and Al-Habbab bin Al-Munzir for the Khazraj. And so all the army was basically prepared, and they left Medina on the day of Thursday, Yawm Al-Khamis, and he had 30,000 fighters with him. 30,000 fighters. And so they went out in pursuit of Tabuk to go to the place called Tabuk. And again, this was in the intense heat. Um, the intense heat. And there was scarcity of resources to such a degree that maybe eight men, uh, 18, 18 men in fact, would be taking turns in order to ride a camel. And likewise, the people would eat because of the scarcity of the food as well. They began to eat from the leaves of trees. And until, obviously, it affected, you know, the, the, the lips were harmed as a result of that. And so they were led to sacrifice some of the camels that they took with them uh, so that they could, um, you know, drink uh, from the water and also eat from them. Now, as they were going towards Tabuk, which is north, they passed by a place which, was, which is a place known as Al-Hijr. And this was the place that was resided in by the Thamud. The Thamud. The people who were destroyed by Allah As they were passing by Thamud, they drank from the water of the wells. And the messenger of Allah he ordered them to, you know, draw this water back out. And uh, why? Because this is a place... Um, it is a place that when people pass by those places where a people, a nation, have been destroyed by Allah then they must pass by this place in humility and with tears and with fear, lest something befall them that befell those nations of the past. And that's why the Messenger of Allah said to them, do not enter the places of those who wrong themselves except whilst you are crying, lest they afflict you what afflicted them. And so when he said this, the Messenger of Islam, he raised, uh, riding on his horse, and he 
proceeded in haste until they passed through the, the, the valley. Likewise, the Messenger of Allah on the journey to Tabuk, he would combine between Dhuhr and Asar and between Maghrib and Aisha, uh, whether uh, the jam of Takhdim to, to uh, bring them uh, early or the, the jam of Ta'akhir, which is to delay the prayers at the later time. Now, eventually, when they reached the area of, area of Tabuk, uh, there's a, a, an incident about a man that was called Abu Khaythama. Abu Khaythama was a man who was a truthful believer and he had actually sought permission. He remained behind, or in fact he, he remained behind without any valid excuse, meaning from this battle. And when he entered his home, it was on a very hot, severely hot day, he found that his wife, his, the, the, his household that they were providing, food and they were providing food and cold water and he was sat there thinking to himself that the messenger of Allah is in the intense heat and here I am here I am Abu Khaythama sitting in the cool shade there is water prepared brought to me and I have beautiful women or wives with me and you know he began to think about all of this and he thought that this cannot be right. How can I be sat here enjoying all of this luxury? And so thinking about these things, he decided to leave. He got up and he said, By Allah, I will not enter the, you know, the abode of any one of you. He said this to his, to, to his women. I will not enter the abode of any one of you until I meet the messenger of Allah. So he got up, took his provisions, rode on his camel, took his sword and his spear, and he went up until he met the Messenger of Allah close to the place known as Tabuk. Now, the Muslims now reached Tabuk, and the news of this has now reached the Roman leaders or the Roman rulers. They knew that the Messenger of Allah has descended at Tabuk, and what happened is as soon as they heard this news, their resolve to fight it became weak. And they were scared, they weren't bold enough, this, this huge big empire. Their leaders and the soldiers, they were not bold enough to come and to meet. To meet on the plains of Tabuk. And so what happened is they remained separated and they remained inside their own land. And the messenger of Allah, he remained for 20 days anticipating the enemy. Anticipating the enemy. And at the same time, whilst he was stationed in Tabuk, there would be delegations that would come to him who had knew that he had come to the region. And these delegations were basically tribes, tribes of the Arabs, tribes of the Christians, tribes of the people of the book. And they were tribes who, as we said before, they were on the outskirts, on the border between Syria and the peninsula. And they had been affected by the fact that the Muslims earlier in the Battle of Murta, had held the Byzantine Empire at bay. And so they would come one by one, he would meet different people, sometimes individuals representing a tribe. And so these delegations would come to him. On one occasion, a man by the name of Yohanna, Yohanna bin Ru'ba, he was the ruler of a place called Ayla, a Christian. And he came and... Um, uh, likewise, people from other places, uh, a place called Mina, 
a place called Jarba and Azrah, many others, and they all came and they basically entered into treaties with the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And as we shall as, as we as we shall see from this point onwards, uh, in the rest of uh, you know the, the lessons that we have left, we will see that many many tribes came willingly of their own accord, and they entered into treaties. Treaties with the Messenger of Allah And you will find in the writings in, of certain, of numerous non-Muslim academics who are historians, and they touch upon this issue of whether Islam was spread by the sword. And did the Messenger of Allah did he, well, in, in general, the spread of Islam, uh, but obviously this goes back ultimately to the Messenger himself, and we can see that large, large, large numbers of tribes in the Arabian Peninsula, whether they were polytheist Arabs, whether they were the tribes of the people of the book, that many of them entered into Islam, or many, many of them agreed to live under the Muslims by way of treaty. By way of treaty. And even after the time of the Messenger of Allah, many, many thousands, tens or hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, the way they entered into Islam was that the Muslim rulers or those uh, you know, uh, non-Muslim people, leaders, they entered into treaties with the Muslims, treaties of peace. Those treaties of peace enabled the peaceful exchange, interaction in terms of trade, in terms of diplomacy, in terms of um, you know, think, things of that nature. And through that the people encountered Muslims and their beliefs and their morals, and their manners, and their ethics, and they entered into, into Islam, gradually over time, after witnessing this, you know, this, 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 uh, the religion of Islam, and the fruits that it brings out in, uh, in people. And so the point being here, that here whilst the Messenger was stationed in Tabuk, that many, many uh, tribes would come to him, they didn't accept Islam, many of them, and nor did the Messenger force them to accept Islam. But they came, they entered into treaties, and so the Messenger of Allah he would give them the guarantee of safety, the guarantee of security. And likewise, any of their trade caravans, any of their ships that would be sailing on the sea, um, they would have freedom of passage, they would be guaranteed safety. Then, many, many tribes entered into these types of uh, arrangements. And... Um, so, this also took place whilst the Messenger of Allah was stationed in uh, Tabuk during this period. There's also a story of another individual, Okaidir. Um, uh, the Messenger of Allah he sent Khalid bin al-Walid to a man who was a leader or representative of, of, of Christians. And... Um, so he sent him and he told him that you will find this man, he will be attending to uh, cattle. And so Khalid bin al-Walid went uh, to where this man was and he found him. And uh, the man came to him and basically um, he, he said to him that I've come to you from the messenger of Allah Sallallahu And you know, he, he negotiated the terms of treaty with that man. And basically in terms of taking uh, a tribute from him in exchange for his uh, safety and peace and you know uh, 
maintaining those places of Ayla and Mina. These were places were, that were lived in by certain tribes who were Christians and otherwise. So the point being that whilst the messenger was here in this region, from all of these details, we can leave some of the details out, that um, he entered into all of these treaties with these inhabitants and you know, therefore extended his sphere of influence beyond where it used to be in Medina, and it went and it reached the borders of Syria, you know, uh, bordering with the Arabian Peninsula. And so the point being here that this, this is some, the, these were some of the positive effects of coming out to Tabuk, even though no fighting eventually was to take place. So, after these 20 days, after these 20 days, the Messenger of Allah, he decided to return back to Medina. And in total, the entire expedition took um, basically 50 days. Uh, 15 going there, 15 returning, uh, and 20 staying. So in total, it took a whole uh, total of 50 days. Now on the way back, the army, they passed by a place called Aqaba. And the messenger of Allah, he stopped by a valley. So now they're coming back towards uh, Medina. And the messenger took the path of Al-Aqaba. And there was no one with him except on this occasion, except Ammar, who was leading his camel, and Hudayfa bin al-Yaman, radiallahu anhuma. As he was descending in this valley, there were 12 men from the hypocrites, who followed them into the valley and they desired to assassinate the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam and they came very very close to them so the messenger of Allah sallam, knowing he sent Hudayfa and he told him to strike the faces of their camels so they become disturbed and that they basically flee you know in order to ward them off so Hudayfa did that and so they became scared and eventually they fled now when Hudayfa went, he saw, he knew who these people were. And that's why we know that Hudayfa bin al-Yaman, he was from those who knew many, many secrets. And from the secrets he knew, was that he knew the identities of the hypocrites. On this occasion, he knew who these 12 men were. On other occasions, he was informed by the Messenger of Allah وسلم, about you know, a certain number of men from the from the hypocrites. And that's why some of the companions like Umar ibn al-Khattab would go to him fearful and he would see when a man would die, did Hudayfa bin al-Yaman pray over him or not? Because that would be a sign that perhaps that man was from the hypocrites. But Umar ibn al-Khattab would, you know, would be fearful in this regard. Now, so obviously this assassination attempt was foiled and as the messengers came back to Medina, he came across a group of the hypocrites who had in that uh, period, they had built a masjid by in a place near to Uba. Uba. A masjid that later became known as Masjid Dirar. Masjid Dirar. This means a mosque by which harm was intended to the Muslims. It was a mosque of harm, not a mosque, a genuine mosque of worship and devotion to Allah Azawajal. But it was made out of their disbelief, their hypocrisy, their kufr, in order to split the Muslims and to 
give sanctuary to anybody who would wage war against Allah, Allah's Messenger. So, as the Messenger approached, and they had built this mosque, they approached him, and they asked him to pray in this mosque. And, basically, in fact, uh, this story of when they did this, it goes back to when the Messenger was leaving for Tabuk. So he told them that basically I cannot come to your masjid because I am on the way to Tabuk. So then on the way back from Tabuk, when he came back to Tabuk, he said, he said when I come back inshallah ta'ala, then maybe I will pray. But when he came back from Tabuk, and uh, he, he, on his journey back, then Jibreel came to him and informed him about the reality of this masjid. That this masjid was built upon, founded upon disbelief and founded upon corruption and mischief and intending harm for the Muslimin. So on the way back to Tabuk, the Messenger of Allah he ordered this masjid to be destroyed and brought to the ground. Now, as the Messenger of Allah he eventually approached the city of Medina, and he managed to see the signposts of Medina in the distance. He began to say, هَذِهِ طَابَة هَذِهِ طَابَة وَهَذَا أُحُدٌ جَبَلٌ يُحِبُّنَا وَنُحِبُّهُ That this is Taba, referring to Medina. Taba. This is like the, the good, wholesome uh, city. And this is Uhud, a mountain which loves us and we love it. And so the people became very uh, happy with his approach. The women, the children came and they began to recite uh, poetry. The full moon has appeared over us through the valley, the directions of the, you know, in a certain direction. And it is obligatory upon us to be grateful so long as the one who calls upon Allah invokes Allah. So they began to recite certain lines of poetry out of happiness. And the Messenger of Allah, he entered the masjid, he prayed two raka'ahs, and he sat in front of the people, sat with the people. Now, if you remember at the beginning, there were many people who kept away from the battle. There were from them those who were the hypocrites, the hypocrites, the disbelievers. And they came to the Messenger of Allah, making all of their excuses, swearing by Allah, saying this, oh, there was this situation, I could not go because of this and this, and they began to make all their excuses, and swearing, because it's from their habit to swear by Allah. It's to swear by Allah. It's one of the traits of the hypocrites, to uh, frequently swear by Allah, to, you know, to demonstrate one's truthfulness. Wallahi, I swear by Allah. Wallahi this, billahi this. And they began to make all of these excuses. And so the Messenger of Allah, he accepted their outward he took them upon the dhahir. He accepted their excuses. And he left their inner, inner secrets to Allah And there also came three men from the truthful believers who had also kept back from the battle. And they were Ka'ab bin Malik, Hilal bin Umayyah, and Marara bin al-Rabi'ah. And they were actually truthful. They were truthful. They did not make any excuses. Um, for keeping away from the battle. Uh, so the Messenger of Allah, he basically ordered them that they should wait until Allah Azza wa Jal sends down revelation regarding them. Sends down revelation to see 
whether they will be forgiven by Allah because they were truthful and genuine or whether they were not. And he ordered the Muslims in the same time period not to speak to them. And even their wives, he ordered them not to approach their wives. And so in this period, these companions, which with this period which lasted approximately 50 days, you can imagine that how the world became narrowed and constricted upon these companions because the, the fear of waiting for revelation to come down to judge in their affair and being treated how they were being treated by the Muslims because the Muslims did not want to speak to them. And so eventually, uh, or in fact after, yeah, after 50 days, The verse was revealed in Surah At-Tawbah in which Allah Azza wa Jal he said وَعَلَى الثَّلَاثَةِ الَّذِينَ خُلِّفُوا حَتَّى إِذَا ضَاقَتْ عَلِيهِمُ الْأَرْضُ بِمَا رَحُبَتْ وَضَاقَتْ عَلِيهِمْ أَنفُسُهُمْ وَظَنُّوا أَلَّا مَلْجَعَ مِنَ اللَّهِ إِلَّا إِلَيْهِ ثُمَّ تَابَ عَلِيهِمْ لِيَتُوبُوا إِنَّ اللَّهَ هُوَ التَّوَّابُ الرَّحِيمُ And upon the three who left behind, who were left behind until the earth, despite it being so expansive and vast, it became constricted upon them and their souls become, became constricted upon them and they thought that there was no escape from Allah except to Allah. Then Allah turned to them so that they may in turn repent to Allah. Indeed, Allah is a tawab. The one who accepts, often accepts the repentance of his servants. He is Ar-Rahim, the merciful. Now when these verses were revealed, and these companions were basically uh, declared as being you know, truthful and their repentance accepted, then the Muslims rejoiced. And likewise, these three companions, they rejoiced as well. They were given glad tidings, they received glad tidings, and uh, they gave charity. And were very, it, was, it was the happiest day in their lives. At the same time, there were verses that were revealed in humiliation and exposure of the hypocrites. Showing that their excuses were not genuine and revealing their inner secrets and what they concealed of the hypocrisy and the disease in their hearts. And these verses gave glad tidings to the Muslim, to the believers, the truthful believers. And so all praise was due to Allah, the Lord of the worlds on this occasion. Now, the Messenger he returned from Tabuk in the month of Rajab, in the ninth year of Hijrah. So basically half of this year had gone. And it was in this uh, time that An-Najashi, the Christian ruler uh, who would actually become Muslim, the ruler would become Muslim, a former Christian ruler would become Muslim. And he passed away. And so the Messenger of Allah he prayed Salatul Ghaib upon him in uh, Medina. And... Another major event that took place around the same, same time was that his daughter, Umm Kulthum, who was the wife, radiallahu anha, of uh, Uthman bin Affan, radiallahu anhu, she likewise passed away in the month of Sha'ban, just before Ramadan, in the same year, the ninth year of Hijrah. So he prayed over her, radiallahu anha, he buried her in Al-Baqiyah, and he was very remorseful and sad over her. And he said to Uthman, radiallahu anhu, that if I had a third, if I had another daughter, I would have indeed married her to you. Because he'd already married two of his daughters to Uthman radiallahu anhu. 
And then another event which took place was in Dhul Qa'ada after Ramadan. Uh, Dhul Qa'ada, um, the head of the hypocrites, the Ra'asul Munafiqeen, known as Abdullah bin Ubay, he passed away. And the messenger of Allah Sallam, he, um, he, he sought forgiveness for him and he prayed over him. And so Umar ibn al-Khattab tried to prevent the Messenger of Allah from praying over Ubay bin Ka'ab, uh, Afwan, Ubay, Abdullah bin Ubay Afwan, a slip of the tongue, from, pay, from praying over Abdullah bin Ubay. Abdullah bin Ubay is the hypocrites and Ubay bin Ka'ab is, is the Sahabi. So Abdullah bin Ubay, he tried to prevent him from praying over Ubay. And the Messenger refused except to pray over Abdullah bin Ubay. Abdullah bin Ubay. Then the Quran came. The Quran was revealed, prohibiting from praying over the hypocrites because of their disbelief and because of their hypocrisy. So the, this was the third major event worthy of mention in this period, and this brings us to brings us to an end of the discussion of the Battle of Tabuk. And you can see that this was a huge, major event in that a small group of Muslims, 30,000 in number, which is relatively small, were able to put the fear in the hearts of the, one of the greatest empires in that time. And so once more, the impact this was to have upon all of the tribes in the region was immense. And this signaled a new era in the, in the, in the prophetic biography, in that from this point onwards, this became the era of the delegations, the wufud, the delegations where people would come from all different areas and places and locations wanting to know about Islam. There were Christians, there were the people of the book, there were uh, tribes of the, the, the mushrikun and other than them who came to either accept Islam or they agreed to, by, to enter into treaties. And so large, large numbers entered into Islam on this basis. Now, before we, uh, as we come to the conclusion of uh, today's lesson, I guess it's, uh, there's a, a word to be mentioned about uh, the battles, because in these lessons we've been through many, many battles, the battle of uh, Badr, uh, the battle of Uhud, the battle of Hunayn, and many other smaller battles that were taking place. And so it's important here to make a, a word regarding uh, battles in general, and war in general in Islam and how Islam came and what it did to the institution of war. Now, before, before Islam, in the days of Jahiliyyah, the, if you looked at the people of Jahiliyyah and the tribes of the Arabs, and you looked at basically just the concept of fighting, or what, what was taking place in terms of fighting, we saw that... <coughs> It was basically just utter chaos. There was killing, there were assassinations, there were raising of whole villages down to the ground, destruction, revenge, you know, seek vengeance, fiery vengeance. There was violating the people's honors. This is basically creating corruption upon the earth, destroying homes, destroying crops, destroying people's lineages, whole genealogies without you know, the, 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 the offspring without any mercy, without any compassion. This is how it used to be. Utter, complete chaos and madness. Why? 
because these people were driven by, um, you know, honor, pride, um, you know, thing, things of that nature. And they would simply, the, the, the whole concept, the same, the whole concept of war was nothing to do with establishing justice. Was nothing to do uh, to, to do with remo- removing oppression. Was nothing to do to protect the weak, the women, the children. Nothing to do with protecting the rights of the people. It was all just utter complete chaos. Whoever was strong would devour the weak. And it was all to do with honor and position and so on and so forth. And so Islam, uh, when Islam came, it completely altered this concept of fighting that was present amongst or in the days of Jahiliyyah. It completely altered and changed this concept of fighting. And so it made war as a means of aiding the oppressed, the oppressed people. And as a means of withhold, uh, subduing and putting back the oppression of the Zalimeen, the oppressors. It became a mean of spreading security and safety in the society so people can get on with their lives and live in peace and security and safety. And it became a means to establish al-adl, justice. And likewise to save the weak, the women, the children, the weak, the downtrodden from the tyranny, from the you know, opportunity taken by the strong people to manipulate them. And likewise to remove the people, the servants of Allah from worshipping Allah slaves to worshipping the Lord of the slaves of Allah and from the oppression and tyranny of the religions to the justice of Islam. Now, from the, from the traits, as we said, from the traits of the Arabs was that they were not willing to uh, humble themselves in front of anybody. And it didn't matter how long the battle would last, it could last hundreds of years because of pride and arrogance, they would not let things go. And that's why you see that when you look in, in the days of Jahiliyyah and the tribes that, would, that w- would be fighting, for example, the battles between Bikr and Taglab, two tribes, lasted 40 years. 40 years. And there were 70,000 people killed in, that, in, in those 40 years in this uh, continuous war between these two tribes. Likewise, and none of them, none of the two tribes was willing to submit to the other one. And likewise, um, the Al-Aws and Al-Khazraj, the two main tribes that were present in, in, uh, in Medina, what became known as Medina in Yathrib. Their battles had been going on for 100 years, for a hundred, the 100 year battle. And not what they did not they refused to submit to the other to the to the to the other tribe and as you can imagine there were thousands and thousands that were killed in the process so the so the basic mentality was that the war would have to continue and continue and continue and no one was going to have the humility or the common sense or the decency to think about you know things rationally and to just submit and live in peace right this was the fiery nature of of, of these people and so when Islam came, and look at, and this is the, the amazing thing as well, that you have to imagine that when, when Islam came, it came in the midst of this type of mentality. This type of mentality. 
So how would the, the messenger and the believers with him be in a position to fight and overcome and to subdue this type of mentality which in the days of Jahiliyyah, the wars would, would, would rage for decades and decades and decades, for a hundred years non-stop. How did Islam come and completely alter this, this mentality and this concept of, of war? And this is when, when a person thinks about this, then this is also what indicates that what Islam came with was something that basically struck and changed the hearts. It did not come with violence, did not come with you know, uh, destruction and mass slaughter as, as, you know, the, uh, as is claimed by the uh, haters from the uh, Islamophobes and other than them, the lies that they spread. Rather, Islam came and used such ways of wisdom and justice and ethics that it basically opened the hearts of these people before it conquered their lands. The hearts were already conquered before their lands needed conquering. And when a person looks at the consequences of the wars that used to take place in the days of Jahiliyyah, one will see you know, that which is, which is amazing. In all of the battles of the Messenger of Allah that took place between himself and the Mushrikeen, the pagans, and the Yahud, and the Nasara, the Christians, numbered no more than 1,000 people. 1,000 people killed in 8 years of conflict. 8 years of conflict. 1,000 people. That is one person every 3 days. One person every 3 days. That was the cost. And it was not initiated by the Messenger of Allah Rather he, as Ibn al-Qayyim says, he never ever ever initiated violence upon anybody until it was initiated upon him first. He never ever ever compelled a single person to accept Islam. Rather the people willingly entered into Islam. When some of the Jews and Christians tried to force their children to become Muslims, the verse was revealed in Surah Al-Baqarah, لا إكراه في الدين There is no compulsion in the religion. So Ibn al-Qayyim mentions this, that the people were not forced into Islam, rather they willingly came and they entered into Islam. Because the messenger never ever initiated violence. And he said that had they left him alone, then he would not, then, then you know, he, he would have let, 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 let them be. And this statement is from Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullahu ta'ala. So, in eight years, and in all the battles that took place, the battle of Badr, the battle of Uhud, the battle of Hunayn, and all the other battles that were taking place, how many casualties? 1,000. 1,000. Hardly 100, almost just over 100 uh, in a year. Compare this to the, what would take place you know, before in the days of Jahiliyyah, and... You know, of the mass killing, the murder, the slaughter, the continuation of war for decades and decades and decades, just the mentality that was present. And you see something that is absolutely amazing. They would slaughter, you know, they would slaughter thousands upon thousands upon thousands. How could a person even imagine that such people with this mentality would be turned into what they became when Islam came after that? And there would only be a thousand casualties, a thousand, at the most, a thousand that were dead. 
And so this is from the greatest and amazing affairs which indicate what? It shows clearly that when you put things into perspective, that it shows clearly that prophethood when it came, and Islam when it came, that this was a prophethood of mercy. He was a prophet of mercy, of you know, a, a lofty message, of wisdom, of a, you know, a lofty call, of something that is miraculous, something that is a bounty and a favor from Allah Azza wa Jal. All of these things a person clearly recognizes and sees these things within uh, Islam. And finally, one more thing uh, that, we'll, that we'll conclude with, uh, which obviously is also relevant to this topic that we have here, which is the topic of slavery. Slavery. Now, in that time, all nations were practicing slavery, but what we mean by slavery, we have to be very specific about when we use the word slavery. It was considered normal in that time for huge empires, large empires, the strong, to, to just go into a region, capture thousands and thousands, if not millions of people, enslave them and bring them back and make them live in a life of bondage. This was something that was basically normal. All nations were, were doing this. Persians, Romans, the Byzantines, the whatever nations going back, you know, in history, all nations were basically were basically doing this. And so amongst the Arabs there would be, you know, uh, slaves. Now when Islam came when Islam came, there are actually certain hadith in this regard as well. We see that contrary to the propaganda and the lies, again, of those hateful Islamophobic, those who hate Islam for, for ideological reasons, uh, and the lies that they spread, contrary to what is uh, spread, we see that Islam, in Islam, there is not a single text in the Quran or the Sunnah that orders that commands taking people slaves in this way. Rather, in fact, there are specific there are, there are hadith which actually prohibit the likes of this. Meaning, as in someone is just living their life, whatever, you just go and just kidnap them and make them into slaves. This, this is prohibited, this is not allowed. And so what we see on, instead in the Qur'an is that we see hundreds, in, in, in the religious texts, we see hundreds of texts encouraging the freeing of slaves but not a single text encouraging or commanding the taking of slaves in the way that people would take slaves. That was customary for people and for nations to take slaves in the way that they used to do. Because that, that is oppression, it is tyranny, it is injustice. So, Islam came to restrict all of the ways by which a person is held under captivity. With the exception... And so what did Islam, how did it restrict it? It restricted it only to, uh, restricted it to, we see that in Islam, the captives of war. When a person is taken captive by way of war. So when we speak about Islam and slavery, we are really, we are speaking mainly about war captives. War captives. And this should not be confused with slavery as we know the, the, you know, uh, as, the, uh, as was practiced by the Europeans and the Romans and other than them, taking whole nations of people, sticking them on boats, half of them die, putting them in, in, in chains in another country to, on plantations and whatever else. This, this is not what we mean by slavery. We mean, we are speaking here of war captives. And war captives, when a person is taken as, as a captive, as part of the, the, the realities and necessities of war, 
Then in Islam, there are regulations um, uh, for, for these war captives. They are to be fed. They are to be looked after. They have, they have certain rights. Uh, they are to be honored. You know, there are, there are, uh, there's a whole body of law in relation to how these people are to, be, are to be treated. Even in the Qur'an, the Qur'an mentions the virtue of those who feed the poor, the needy, and the, 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 the asir, the captive, the war captive. And in fact, we find to such a degree that one of the war captives from the Mushrikun, he mentions how that when he was captured, I believe, in one of the battles, I believe it was Badr. And he mentions how that when he was captured, the Prophet's companions would be throwing bread to him. Every single one of them was certain they would be throwing their bread to him to let him eat first. And each time he would be embarrassed and he'd throw it back. And each time they'd throw it back again. Right To illustrate how the companions were with a war captive because of what they had been commanded in the Qur'an and by the messengers to look after the war captive. So when we look at things from this, from this angle, we see that you know, we, we, we can pierce through the lies, the fabrications of those liars and those haters who try to spread lies about Islam. And all the time we see them taking things out of context. And they... You know, and it, it's all distortions and fabrications. So we see that in Islam, there's no such thing as capturing whole nations and tribes and enslaving them. And, you know, this does not exist. And in Islam, there's no command to this. Rather, all the texts in the Quran and Sunnah uh, are to do with encouraging uh, 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 the freeing of slaves. But there's an element there where there are captives which are involved. But this is part and parcel of the necessity of war, and there's a body of law that exists to, you know, to regulate that, and they are to be treated uh, in, in a certain way. So, uh, with that, we'll conclude our lesson there for today, and inshallah ta'ala, uh, in the next lesson, we will deal with uh, what remains of the final stages of the life of the Prophet and this is the time in which the delegations, so many delegations, would come from so many different places. So we will look at uh, some of those. And that will lead us to the farewell pilgrimage and then finally towards the, uh, the end of the prophetic biography. So with that, we'll conclude our lesson there today. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.